Chapter Seven of the Loudwater Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Loudwater Mystery by Edgar Jepson. Chapter Seven. Mr. Flexen found Inspector Perkins waiting for him in the dining room with the information that James Hutchins was at his father's cottage in the Westwood, and that he had set one of his detectives to watch him. Also he told him that he had learned that Hutchins was generally disliked in the village, as well as at the castle, as a violent, bad-tempered man, with a habit of fixing quarrels on anyone who would quarrel with him, and, as often as not, on mild and inoffensive persons, quite incapable of bearing themselves in a quarrel, with any unpleasant effectiveness. Mr. Flexen discussed with the inspector the question of taking out a warrant for the arrest of Hutchins, and they decided that there was no need to take the step, at any rate at the moment. It was enough to have him watched. He would learn, doubtless, that it was known that he had been in the castle late the night before. If on learning it he took fright and bolted, it would rather simplify the case. Then Mr. Flexen sent again for Elizabeth Twitcher, and questioned her at length about Lord Loudwater's onslaught on Lady Loudwater the night before, and about the condition in which he had been at the end of it. Elizabeth was somewhat sulky in her manner, for she felt that she was to blame for that onslaught having come to Mr. Flexen's ears. She was more careful to make it plain that however violently Lord Loudwater may have been affected, Olivia had taken the business lightly enough, and decided to ignore his injuncture to her to leave the castle. Mr. Flexen did not miss the point that Lord Loudwater had threatened to hound Colonel Grey out of the army, but at the moment he did not attach importance to it. It was the kind of threat that an angry man would be pretty sure to make in the circumstances. Having dismissed Elizabeth Twitcher, he came to lunch with the impression strong on him that he had made as much progress as could be expected in one morning towards the solution of the problem. He was quite undecided whether Hutchins' presence in the castle at so late an hour and the probability that he had entered and left it by the library window or the matter of the woman who had had the stormy interview with the murdered man was the most important. It must be his early task to discover who that woman was. He found Mr. Manley awaiting him in the little dining-room, ready to play host. Over their soup and fish, they talked about ordinary topics and a little about themselves. Mr. Manley learned that Mr. Flexen had been in the Indian police for over seven years and had been forced to resign his post by the breakdown of his health, that during the war he had twice acted as chief constable and three times as stipendary magistrate in different districts. Mr. Flexen gathered that Mr. Manley had fought in France with a brilliant intrepidity, which had not met with the public recognition it deserved, and learned that he had been invalided out of the army owing to the weakness of his heart. This common failure of health was a bond of sympathy between them and made them well disposed to one another. There came a pause in this personal talk, and either of them addressed himself 
to the consumption of the wing of a chicken with a certain absorption in the occupation. It was not uncharacteristic of Mr. Manley that his high sense of fitness of things had not prevailed on him to accord the liver wing to the guest. He was firmly eating it himself. Then Mr. Flexen said, "'I suppose you came across Hutchins, the butler, pretty often. What kind of fellow was he?' "'He was rather more like his master than if he had been his twin brother, except that he wore whiskers and not a beard,' said Mr. Manley, in a tone of hearty dislike. "'He does not appear to have been at all popular with the other servants,' said Mr. Flexen. "'He certainly wasn't popular with me,' said Mr. Manley dryly. "'What did Lord Loudwater discharge him for?' A matter of a commission on the purchase of some wine, said Mr. Manley. Then, in a more earnest tone, he added, Look here, the trenches knock a good deal of the nonsense out of one, and I tell you frankly that if I could help you in any way to discover the criminal, I wouldn't. My feeling is that if ever anyone wanted putting out of the way, Lord Loudwater did, and as he was put out of the way quite painlessly, probably, it was a valuable action." whatever its motive. I expect that a good many people have come back from the trenches with very different ideas about justice, said Mr. Flexen, in an indulgent tone. The India police also changes your ideas about it. But it's my duty to see that justice is done, and I shall. Besides, I'm very keen on solving this problem, if I can. It seems that Hutchins was in the castle last night about eleven o'clock, and as you said something about coming down for a drink about that time, I thought you might possibly know something about his movements. Well, as it happened, said Mr. Manley, and stopped short, paused, and went on. You seem to have made up your mind that it was a murder and not a suicide. So you do know something about the movements of Hutchins, said Mr. Flexen, smiling. You'll be subpoenaed, you know, if he is charged with a murder. That would, of course, be quite a different matter, said Mr. Manley gravely. As to it being a murder, I've pretty well made up my mind that it was, said Mr. Flexen. Mr. Manley looked at him gravely. You have, have you, he said. Then he added, about that knife and the fingerprints on it, if it happens to have recorded any, I've been thinking that you may find yourself suffering from an embarrassment of riches. I know that mine will be on it and Lady Loudwater's, who used it to cut leaves of a volume of poetry the day before yesterday, and Hutchins, who cut the string of a parcel of books with it yesterday, and very likely the fingerprints of Lord Loudwater. You know how it is with a knife like that, which lies open and handy. Everyone uses it. I've seen Lady Loudwater use it to cut flowers, and Lord Loudwater to cut the end off a cigar, cursing, of course, because he couldn't lay his hands on a cigar-cutter, and the knife was blunt. And I've cut all kinds of things with it myself. Yes, but the fingerprints of the murderer, if it does record them, will be on top of all those others. I shall simply take prints from all of you and eliminate them. Of course, you can get at it that way, said Mr. Manley. They were silent while Holloway set the cheese straws on the table. When he had left the room, Mr. Flexen said in a casual tone, "'You don't happen to know whether Lord Loudwater was mixed up with any woman in the neighborhood?' Mr. Manley paused, then laughed and said, "'It's no use at all. When I told you 
that I would throw no light on the matter if I could help it, I really meant it. At the same time, I don't mind saying that, with his reputation for brutality, I should think it very unlikely. You can never tell about women, so many of them seem to prefer brutes. And after all, a peer is a peer, said Mr. Flexen. There is that, said Mr. Manley, in thoughtful agreement. But he was frowning faintly as he cudgeled his brain in the effort to think of what had set Mr. Flaxen on the track of Helena Trustlove, for it must be Helena. I expect I shall be able to find out from his lawyers, said Mr. Flexen. This promises to be interesting, the intervention of romance, said Mr. Manley, in a tone of livelier interest. I took it that the murder, if it was a murder, would be a sordid business, in keeping with Lord Loudwater himself. But if you're going to introduce a lady into the case, it promises to be more fruitful in interest for the dramatist. I'm writing plays. But Mr. Flexen was not going to divulge the curious fact that about the time of his murder, Lord Loudwater had had a violent quarrel with a lady. He had no doubt that Mrs. Carruthers would keep it to herself. "'Oh, one has to look for every possible factor in a problem like this, you know,' he said carelessly. The faint frown lingered on Mr. Manley's brow. Mr. Flexen supposed that it was the result of his refraining from gratifying his appetite for the dramatic. They were silent for a while. "'When are you going to take our fingerprints?' said Mr. Manley presently. "'Not till I've learned whether there are any on the handle of the knife,' said Mr. Flexen. Perkins has already sent it off to Scotland Yard. I never thought of that. It would be rather a waste of time to take them before knowing that, said Mr. Manley. Halloway brought the coffee. Mr. Manley gave Mr. Flexen an excellent cigar, and they talked about the war. Mr. Flexen drank his coffee quickly, said that he must get back to his work, and added that he hoped that he would enjoy the company of Mr. Manley at dinner. Mr. Manley had been going to dine with Helena Truslove, but after Mr. Flexen's question whether Lord Loudwater had been entangled with any woman in the neighborhood, he thought that he had better dine with him. He might learn something useful. If he could induce Mr. Flexen to expand under the relaxing influence of dinner, he resolved to use his authority to have the most engaging wine the cellar held. He was determined to make every endeavor to keep Helena's name out of the affair, and he thought that he would succeed. Mr. Flexen left him. He finished his coffee, the second cup, slowly, wondering about Mr. Flexen's question about Lord Loudwater and a woman. Then, since he had done all the work he could think of in the way of making arrangements for the funeral during the morning, he set out briskly to Helena's house, hoping that she would be able to throw some light on it. He greeted her with his usual warmth, and then, when he came to look at her at his leisure, it was plain to him that the murder had been a much greater shock to her than he had expected. He was surprised at it, for she had assured him that she had never really been in love with Lord Loudwater, and he had believed her. But there was no doubt that she had been greatly upset by the news of his death. Her high coloring was dimmed. She wore a harassed air and she was uncommonly nervous and ill at ease. He thought it strange that she should be so deeply affected by the death of a man she had such good reason to detest. But, of course, there was no telling how a woman would take anything. 
Lady Loudwater's distress had fallen as far short of what he had expected as Helena's had exceeded it. To Mr. Manley's credit, it must be admitted that in less than twenty minutes Helena Truslove was looking another creature. Her face had recovered all its color, the harassed air had vanished from it, and she was sitting on his knee in a condition of the most pleasant repose. It was his theory that a woman was never too ill, or too ill at ease, or too unhappy to be made love to. He had acted on it. When he had thus restored her peace of mind, he told her that Mr. Flexen had asked him whether the late Lord Loudwater had been mixed up with any lady in the neighborhood, and asked her if she could suggest any reason for his having asked the question. She appeared greatly startled to hear of it, but she could not suggest any reason for his having asked the question. He then asked her about the manner in which the allowance had been paid to her, and was pleased to learn that there was little likelihood of Mr. Flexen's learning that she had received such an allowance from Lord Loudwater, for it had been paid her through a young lawyer of the name of Shepherd at Low Wycombe, the lawyer who had dealt with the matter of the transference of the house they were in to her from the rents of some houses Lord Loudwater owned in that town, and that lawyer was somewhere in Mesopotamia, his practice in abeyance. She was in entire accord with Mr. Manley about the advantage of her name not being connected in any way with the tragedy at the castle. She pointed out that it was also an advantage that she had just been paid her allowance for the present quarter, and there would not be another payment for three months. By that time, it was probable that the murder would have passed out of people's minds, and Mr. Flexen be busy with other work. It seemed to Mr. Manley that Mr. Flexen would not easily learn about the allowance unless Mr. Carrington also knew it, which seemed unlikely, though it was always possible that there was some record of it among the Lord Loudwater's papers at the castle. Soon after seven, he left her to walk back to dine with Mr. Flexen. Mr. Flexen had had a considerable surprise that afternoon. He had told Robert Black to find William Roper and bring him to him. He wished to hear the story he had told Lord Loudwater the evening before, for it might be of a triviality to make the hypotheses that Lord Loudwater had committed suicide yet less worthy of serious consideration. Black was a long while finding William Roper, for he was at work in the woods. Indeed, he had not yet heard that Lord Loudwater had been murdered, for he had been up most of the night, risen late, got his own breakfast in his out-of-the-way cottage in the depths of the West Wood, and gone out on his rounds. The constable found him at the cottage in the act of preparing his dinner, or rather, his tea and dinner, at a quarter to four. William Roper was startled, indeed, to hear of the murder, and then bitterly annoyed. All the while on his rounds he had been congratulating himself on his coming promotion, and reckoning up the many advantages which would accrue from it, not the least of which was a wider prospect of finding a wife. The cup was dashed from his lips. He had acquired no merit in the eyes of the new Lord Loudwater, and he had probably made the present Lady Loudwater his enemy. If the murdered man had divulged the source of his knowledge of her goings-on with Colonel Gray. He ate his mixed meal very sulkily, listening to the constable's account of the circumstances of the crime. 
Slowly, however, his face grew brighter as he listened. The new information he had obtained for his murdered employer might very well have an important bearing on the crime itself. He might yet establish himself as the benefactor of the family. On the way to the castle he was so mysterious with Robert Black that the stout constable became a prey to mingled curiosity and doubt. He could not make up his mind whether William Roper really knew something of importance or was merely vaporing. William Roper neither gratified his curiosity nor banished his doubt. He was alive to the advantage of reserving his information for the most important ear, so as to gain the greatest possible credit for it. At the first sight of him, Mr. Flexen felt that he had before him an important witness, for he took a violent dislike to him, and he had observed, in the course of his many years' experience in the detection of crime, that the most important witness in hounding down a criminal was very often of a repulsive type, the narc type. William Roper was of that type, but his story was indeed startling. He first told how he had seen Colonel Gray kiss Lady Loudwater in the afternoon. Mr. Flexen noted that Lord Loudwater had accused her of kissing Gray, and of their spending most of the afternoon in the pavilion in the East Wood. The time of his watching had already lengthened in William Roper's memory. There was nothing new in these facts, and Mr. Flexen saw no reason to suppose that they had any bearing on the crime. But William Roper went on to say that soon after ten in the evening he had been on his round in the Eastwood when he saw Colonel Gray walking in the direction of the castle. His curiosity had been aroused by what he had seen in the afternoon, and thinking it not unlikely that he was on his way to another meeting with the Lady Loudwater, and that it was the duty of a faithful retainer to make sure about it, with a view to informing his master, should his surmise prove correct, he followed him. The colonel went straight through the wood, into the castle garden, walked round the castle, keeping in its shadow as he went, till he stood under the window of Lady Loudwater's suite of rooms. There he appeared to suffer a check. There was a light in the room on the ground floor under her boudoir. The colonel had waited quite a while, and then he had walked around the castle and into it by the library window. William, greatly surprised by the colonel's audacity, had taken up his position in a clump of tall rhododendrons opposite the library window, from which he could keep watch on it. "'What time would this be?' said Mr. Flexen. "'It couldn't have been more than twenty minutes past ten, sir,' said William Roper. "'And what happened then?' said Mr. Flexen. Nothing happened for a good ten minutes. Then James Hutchins, the butler, come across the gardens from the south gate, as if he'd come from the village, and he went through the library window, the same window. Mr. Flexen had thought it not unlikely that Hutchins had entered the castle by that entrance. He was pleased to have his guests corroborated. That would be about half-past ten, he said. Could you see into the library at all? Only a very little way, sir. You couldn't see whether Colonel Gray and then James Hutchins went straight through it into the hall, or whether either of them went into the smoking-room. No, I couldn't see so far in as that, though there was a light burning in the library, said William Roper. That was a new fact. Anyone passing through the library 
would be able to see the open knife lying in the big inkstand. "'Go on,' said Mr. Flexen. "'What happened next?' "'Nothing happened for a long while. Twenty minutes, I should think. And then there comes a woman round the right-hand corner of the castle wall and along it and into the library window. At first I thought it was Mrs. Carruthers or one of the maids. She was too tall for her ladyship. But it weren't.' "'Are you quite sure?' said Mr. Flexen. "'Quite, sir. I should have known her if she had been. Besides, she was all muffed up like. You couldn't see her face.' "'Did she hesitate before going through the library window?' said Mr. Flexen. "'Not as I noticed. She seemed to go straight in.' "'As if she were used to going in the castle that way,' said Mr. Flexen. William Roper scratched his head. Then he said cautiously, she seemed to know the way in all right, sir. And how was she dressed? said Mr. Flexen. She wasn't in black. It wasn't as dull as black, but it was dullish. It might have been gray, and again it might not. It might have been blue or brown. You see, there was a fair moon, sir, but it was behind the castle, and I never seed her in the full moonlight, as you may say. Seeing as coming and going, she come along the wall, and went round the right-hand corner of it, into the shadow. "'And which of these three people came away first? said Mr. Flexen. "'She did. She wasn't in the castle more nor twenty minutes, if that.' "'Did she seem in a hurry when she came out? Did she run or walk quickly?' "'No, I can't say as she did. She went away just about as she came, in no particular hurry,' said William Roper. Mr. Flexen paused, considering. Then he said, and who was the next to leave? The colonel, he come out next, in about ten minutes. Did he seem to hurry? He walked pretty brisk, and he was frowning, like as if he was in a rage. He passed me close, so I had a good look at him. Yes, I should say, he was fair boiling, he was, said William Roper, in a solemn, pleased tone, of one giving damning evidence. Mr. Flexen did not press the matter, he said, so James Hutchins came away last? Yes, about five minutes after the colonel, and he was in a pretty fair to-do, too. Leastways, he was frowning and muttering to himself. He passed me close. Did he seem in any hurry? said Mr. Flexen. He was walking fairly fast, said William Roper. Mr. Flexen paused again, pondering. He thought that William Roper had thrown all the light on the matter he could, and he had certainly revealed a number of facts which looked uncommonly important. "'And that was all you saw?' he said. "'That was all, except her ladyship,' said William Roper. "'Her ladyship?' said Mr. Flexen sharply. "'Yes, you see. There was no hurry for me to get back to the woods, sir, and I sat down on one of them garden seats along the edge of the Wellingtonian shrubbery to smoke a pipe and think it out. I felt it was my duty, like, to let his lordship know about these goings-on, never thinking of how he's sitting there all the time with a knife in him. I should think it was twenty minutes after that I saw her ladyship come out. Of course, I was farther away from the window, but I saw her quite plain. "'And where did she go?' said Mr. Flexen. "'She didn't go nowhere, so to speak. She just walked up and down the gravel path, like as if she had come out for a breath of fresh air. Then she went in.' She wasn't out more than ten minutes, or a quarter of an hour. Mr. Flexen was silent, in frowning thought. 
Then he looked earnestly at William Roper for a good minute. Then he said, Well, this may be important, or it may not. But it is very important that you should keep it to yourself. He looked hard again at William, decided that an appeal to his vanity would be best, and added, You're pretty shrewd, I fancy, and you can see that it is most important not to put the criminal on his guard, if it was a crime. I suppose I shall have to tell what I know at the inquest, said William Roper, with an air of importance. Mr. Flexen gazed at him thoughtfully, weighing the matter. Here was a number of facts which might or might not have an important bearing on the murder, but which would give rise to a great deal of painful and harmful scandal if they were given to the world at this juncture. Besides, the publication of them might force his hand, and he preferred to have a free hand in this matter as he had been used to have a free hand in India. There he had dealt with more than one case in such a manner as to secure substantial justice, rather than the exact execution of the law. It might be that in this case justice would be best secured by leaving the murderer to his or her conscience, rather than by causing several people great unhappiness by bringing about a conviction. He was inclined to think, with Mr. Manley, that the murderer might have performed the public service by removing Lord Loudwater from the world he had so ill-adorned. At any rate, he was resolved to have a free hand to deal with the case, and most certainly he was not going to allow this noxious young fellow to hamper his freedom of action and final decision. "'Your evidence seems to me of much too great importance to be given at the inquest.' It must be reserved for the trial, he said, in an impressive tone. But if it gets abroad that you have seen what you have told me, the criminal will be prepared to upset your evidence, and it will probably become quite worthless. You must not breathe a word about what you saw to a soul till we have your evidence supported beyond all possibility of it being refuted. Do you understand? For a moment, William Roper looked disappointed. He had looked to become famous that very day, but he realized his great importance in the affair, and his face cleared. "'I understand, sir,' he said, with dark solemnity. "'Not a word,' said Mr. Flexen, yet more impressively. End of chapter 7 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas